my mom's mom has nine grandkids. I'm one of them. And uh, all of us assume that we were her favorite grandchild. And so one day I asked her the question when it was just the two of us. Grams, who's your favorite grandchild? Me, right? She looked at me and she smiled and she said, yes, you are, of course. I knew it. And she confirmed it. Now, we tend to take that childhood fantasy of being the favorite into adulthood. We all want to be the favorite parent, the favorite child, the favorite employee, the favorite uh, friend. And that's not diabolical. It's just human. But it becomes a problem when we want to be the favorite based on gender or race or ethnicity, then it's a problem. If I believe that a person is inferior or superior based upon their gender, then I am a sexist. If I believe that a person is inferior or superior based upon their race or ethnicity, then I am a racist. Based on my reading of Scripture, I can say with absolute conviction that sexism and racism sickens the heart of God. Well, let's go to the Bible. Let's go back to the beginning with some lessons from the garden. As I said last week, Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, presents God's divine design for the human race. In the garden, in the beginning, there is nothing between humanity and God. No barriers. There's nothing between the man and the woman. Different but equal. Uh, There's no fig leaves of separation. There's no barriers. That comes in Genesis 3. The barriers do, the fig leaves. But not in Genesis 1 and 2. And here's a spoiler alert, okay? So close your ears if you don't want to know the whole story. But the Bible actually ends where it started. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, and then you read Revelations 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, it sounds like the story comes full circle. It sounds like what happens in the beginning happens in the end. In the beginning, in in the garden, in Genesis, you get... God creating human beings in his image, which means a lot of things, but it, but it includes the capacity we have as humans for intimate fellowship with God. And then at the end of uh, chapter 2, we get this sort of summary statement that's beautiful. Uh, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There's nothing between them. They're different. They recognize it, but they're equal. And it's beautiful. And then you get to the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, and uh, God is kind of with the human race like he was in the garden, walking in the cool of the day, and you get God being so close to the human race that he can wipe every tear from our eyes, and there's no more uh, death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, guess what shows up again? Tree of life. Tree of life that was in the garden. (laughs) 
And it also says that there will no longer be any curse that comes with chapter 3. And what I want to suggest, that's your homework, by the way, to read Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, the first two chapters, the last two chapters of the Bible, because you need those both to understand what comes in the middle. Because in the middle, between the garden of Genesis, the tree of life in Genesis, and the tree of life in Revelation, comes Jesus to get humanity back to the garden again. Intimacy, harmony, equality. Genesis 1, let's look a little closer at Genesis 1, 26 and 27 because God says three times, let's make human beings in our image, God says. In our image, let's make them. And then the finale, male and female, He created them. Now why did God put it that way? Because He was trying to state loud and clear that the image of God in a female is equal to the image of God in a male. That's why. I have three kids, two sons, one daughter, who's right in the middle. And my image, my DNA, is not more profoundly upon my boys than my girl. My sons can't say to my daughter Leah, you know, uh, uh, we have more of dad's DNA than you do. We're more legitimate children than, than you are. No, the image of God in my daughter is equal to the image of God in my boys. And my image in all of them is equal. There's a, a beautiful verse that comes at the end of uh, uh, Genesis 2.25. It says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. I won't put it on a bumper, but it's one of my favorites. <laughs> There's equality, there's intimacy, there's harmony. The likeness of God and the man and the woman, nothing between them. I love what Martin Luther King said about uh, the image of God. He says, there's no gradations in the image of God. Every person, whether a treble white or a black bass is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every person is made in the image of God. He said, one day we will learn that. Maybe today will be that day. Naked and unashamed. Different, but equal. Male, female, black, white, brown, yellow, red, all with the image of God upon them. And the image of God in you is equal to the image of God in me. We've got to get that. But then you know that creation was corrupted in Genesis 3. It didn't take long for the human race to mess things up, and we did, three chapters in. Like kids who can't keep their hands out of the cookie jar... Adam and Eve had to go and eat from the one tree, the one tree in the whole garden that was off limits. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after they did that, all hell broke loose, literally. And then they start making coverings for themselves, fig leaves. Chapter 3, verse 7, my least favorite verse in the Bible. Now we're hiding from God and hiding from each other and we're lying and we're blaming And then comes the curse. The curse upon women. The curse of inequality. Your husband will rule over you. 
That comes in chapter 3. The curse of inequality is not the result of God's will. It's actually the result of human sin. Don't forget it. And now the tension of inequality and disharmony abounds. Even in ways and in places we wouldn't think it would come up. (laughs) Give me an example of this. Over a year ago, I was talking to the sweet 70-year-old woman. We were having a meal together. Uh, It's none of you sweet 70-year-olds. This is before I was your pastor. So this is way back, uh, a year and a half ago or so. And we were having a meal together, and I wanted to bring up some friendly conversation with this sweet 70-year-old woman, white woman. And I I said, you know, what do you think of the church's role in racial reconciliation? And I began to lament my perspective, which is that because the church has not been real active in the battle, politicians have picked up the mantle and have created a wedge more than a bridge. And this sweet 70-year-old woman became angry. I was trying to be theological, and she got political. And she said, you know, uh, white men can't get jobs because they're white. And uh, all white people now are viewed as, as villainous and violent and ignorant simply because they're white. And not all of them are like that. <laughs> and I just looked at her in love and with as much grace as I could said, that's exactly how minorities have felt for a very long time. Misunderstood. Discriminated against. Judged. Stereotyped. If I could read the bubble of thought over your head right now, what might I find there? Ah, Enough of this politically correct mumbo-jumbo. Let's stop worrying about PC and get back to JC. Sure, groups like the KKK and the Black Panthers exist, but none of us in this place are diabolically racist. We're past that. And I'm not suggesting that any of us are diabolically racist, but I wonder how many of us are covertly racist. I'll be the first to confess I'm a recovering sexist and racist. Anybody else? How many of our opinions of people are formed by stereotypes? All Italians are wife-beating mafia members who gluttonously eat pasta. I take offense to that as an Italian. I do not beat my wife. Being a pastor is not a front for some organized crime I have going on, though I do confess to the occasional gluttonous devouring of pasta. I'll just confess that. All Irish people are beer-guzzling members of the IRA. All uh, blacks, especially with one pant leg up to their knee, are drug dealers who collect welfare checks while they're doing it. All Jews are cheap Jesus haters who talk too much. (laughs) All Polish people are... You've heard the jokes. (laughs) Racism, though, is no laughing matter. The Bible condemns sexism and racism often. 
often. Because it's not a political issue. It's actually a theological one. Did you know that the major world religions, uh, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, Hinduism, all put forth a God who favors a certain race of people? Did you know this? But the God of the Bible, in the words of Peter, Acts chapter 10, uh, shows partiality and favoritism to no person, but accepts all people from all nations who fear him and do what's right. And yet, we have these ethnic pictures of Jesus, don't we? Put those up. We have Italian Jesus, we have white Jesus, we have Asian Jesus, we have Native American Jesus, we have black Jesus. God made us in his image. Why do we keep trying to make him into ours? (laughs) I'm not suggesting that any of us in this room are white supremacists or black power advocates or angry feminist or male chauvinist pigs. But I wonder how much is under the surface. Subtle. Listen, I have read about, I have prayed about these issues. I have led a congregation that was known for white supremacy in her past to become one of the multi, only multi-ethnic churches in our community back in PA. I promoted three women to pastoral positions in a church that never had female pastors. So this is important to me, but, and yet I still, I still, if I'm honest, allow prejudice and racism and sexism to creep into my heart from time to time. And I hate it. So the million dollar question, not WWJD, what would Jesus do, but WDJD. What did Jesus do about these issues? I'm going to go two places in the Bible, okay? Two chapters. I can go through the whole Gospels if I wanted to, but two places, two chapters, John 4, and Luke 10. Two chapters where Jesus deals with both sexism and racism in both chapters. In John 4, uh, Jesus comes upon a uh, a Samaritan woman. She's female, and she's a half-breed. She's a Samaritan. I'll I'll get to that in a second. And then in Luke, uh, Luke 10, Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan. And he tells it to a bunch of Jews who hate Samaritans. So let me just give you a quick history lesson about why uh, Jews hated Samaritans as much as they did. Quick, quick history. In the 8th century BC, before Christ, the Assyrians overtook the Israelites, the people of God. They captured Israel. And the Assyrians and Israelites intermarried. And the offspring of that intermarriage were half-breeds, Samaritans. And so any full-blooded Jew hated those half-breed Samaritans. Now, in the 6th century B.C., King Cyrus of Persia allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to go rebuild their city, rebuild their temple. And the Samaritan half-breeds wanted to help the full-blooded Jews, but the Jews didn't want the help of the half-breeds. And this is captured in the book of Ezra. And then because the Jews didn't want the help of the Samaritans, the Samaritans got upset and made the rebuilding of Jerusalem very difficult for the Jews, which is captured in the book of Nehemiah. 
By the time you get to the first century, the time of Christ, Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us that even in the first century after Christ, the Jews and Samaritans still hate each other. There's a lot of violent outbreaks. It's been going on for years. Uh, on one occasion, the Samaritans actually put human remains, human bones, in the Jewish temple during the time of the Passover. They desecrated the temple. Think prank week between Indiana University and Purdue University. This is why in John 4, when Jesus strikes up a conversation with a half-breed Samaritan and a woman, she's shocked. You're a Jew! You're speaking to me, a Samaritan? She's shocked by it all. And he has an actually rather extended conversation with her. In a culture where Jewish men don't even look at women in public, let alone talk to them, not even their sister or mother or wife. And Jesus has a conversation looking into the eyes of this half-breed Samaritan who happens to be a woman. And after just a brief conversation with Jesus, she feels dignified, empowered, no longer marginalized because of her ethnicity and her gender. In fact, she leaves her water jar there at the well. She forgets it there. She runs back to her hometown, and she begins to tell everybody in her town about this Jesus, the Messiah. She is the first Christian preacher in the history of the church, and she's a half-breed, and she's a woman. Wow. And then we get to Luke 10. Jesus tells a parable to a bunch of Jews about a guy who's Jewish going down on the Jericho Road from the temple. He's a Jew worshiping at the temple. He gets beat up. He's left half naked and he's robbed. Along comes a Jewish priest who can see that the victim who's half naked, is Jewish because Jews were circumcised. And this is a detail that's important. Forgive the image, but Jews are circumcised. The priest can tell it's a Jew, but he does nothing to help his countrymen. And then a Levite comes by, sees the guy's nakedness, he's circumcised, he's the Jew, doesn't do anything to help. And then there comes a Samaritan. And the Samaritan does for the Jew what the Jews did not do. The good Samaritan, which is oxymoronic to most Jews, good Samaritan, who used to say, after they said the words Samaritan, used to actually spit to get the word out of their mouths. He's the hero of the story. I can't imagine telling this parable to my Italian friends and family, whom I love. I'll tell it like this. An Italian guy leaves the Catholic Mass at 8 a.m. and goes up the alley and gets beat up, left for dead robbed. Along comes an Italian Catholic priest, sees the Italian victim, puts his head down, keeps walking. And then the guy's godfather, Vito Corleone, walks by, sees his godson, doesn't help at all, keeps going. And then an African-American guy comes walking by and saves and helps the Italian victim. Some of my friends might go through the roof. (laughs) Jesus is adding value to the Samaritans. Equality, getting us back to the garden. A little further in chapter 10, 
we get to the Mary and Martha passage. You know the story where Jesus shows up with the 12 apostles unannounced at Mary and Martha's house. And now they got to scramble for food because these guys are hungry. And Martha does the conventional thing, the culturally conventional thing. She's in the kitchen cooking for the guys because that's what women do. They cook for men. Mary, Martha's sister, on the other hand, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking on the posture of a disciple, of a rabbi, a role which was reserved at that time and that culture only for men. Only men could be the disciples of a rabbi. And Mary is daring to take on the posture of a role traditionally reserved for men. How dare her? Martha goes to Jesus. Lord, tell Mary to help me in the kitchen. And here comes the verdict. Here's what Jesus says. Mary, choosing a role reserved for men, Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken from her. Back to the garden. Again. Make no mistake about it. Jesus defends, commends, and befriends marginalized ethnic groups and women so that all are equal in his eyes. And any time we do anything less, we are acting less than Christian. Again, this is not about being PC. This is about JC. I'm not some some flaming liberal, or some angry feminist. I just want to be a biblical Christian because there is no other kind. We are equal. (laughs) Jesus came not just to forgive us for the fall of Genesis 3, but to restore the equality in creation of Genesis 1 and 2. That's what he came to do. And how does he do it? through the church, through us. That's how he does it. Think about the ministries of Peter and Paul. little history on Peter. Peter was a racist Jew who thought anybody who wasn't fully Jewish was inferior. Struggled with that big time. But then in Acts chapter 10, this racist Jew, Peter, is standing in the home of a non-Jew, a Gentile, Cornelius. And he says, I now perceive how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts all people from all nations who fear him and do what's right. He got it. Back to the garden. And then the Apostle Paul, who often gets misquoted out of historical context for the oppression of women, in Galatians 3.28 wrote, There's neither Jew or Greek, Slave or free, male or female, but all are one in Christ. It wasn't the government. It wasn't the Republican Party or the Democratic Party that sought for the abolition of slavery. You know who it was? It was the church. It wasn't the government. It wasn't the Republicans or the Democrats, but the church that fought for the equality of women starting in a church in New York State. Did you know that? 
The church has messed up a lot over the years, but we have been at our best when we are partnering with Jesus to get humanity back to the garden again. Can I, can I get a little testimonial, if that's okay? One of you say amen, and I'll just go with it. Okay. Uh, I wasn't always in full support of women in ministry, women as equal to men in the church. Um, I regret that. The problem was, this is when I was in college preparing to be a pastor, and there were female students with me preparing to be a pastor too. And I allowed my opinions to outpace my biblical knowledge. (laughs) I wish I would have shut up. One of, my, um, one of my female friends who was studying to be a pastor one day uh, came up to me. We were in college, and uh, for some reason, my opinion really mattered to her. And she must have heard me sort of make some snide remarks about women in ministry at some point, and she said, uh, uh, Len, do you support my call to be a pastor? And at that point, I didn't. And I couldn't. And I broke her heart. I don't know that she ever made it into ministry. Maybe not because of me, I hope not. But I had a chance to support her and validate her. And because of two sentences from the Apostle Paul, when in reality, the whole of the Pauline corpus, all that he wrote, the entire Bible, especially the ministry of Jesus, makes a very compelling case for the equality of women in ministry. And I blew it blew it. Now I support women in ministry fully. Again, not based on political correctness. Based upon my reading of the biblical canon, the story. Talk about racism. I've talked often in here about the racial divide and the need for reconciliation. And some of you may be wonder, why in the world does Lenny talk about this so often? And I guess it's because my conversion is wrapped up in this particular issue. I told you I grew up in uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, if your brother looks just like you. Uh, There are divides everywhere. In my high school, it wasn't blacks against whites. It was actually Irish against Italian. That That was the big battle. If any of you are Irish, by the way, please don't beat me up after service, okay? I said a lot about the Irish. Um, and I remember uh, one time, uh, I, wasn't, I didn't grow up in a church, you know that, but um, I was 17, dropped out of high school by this point, getting drunk three or four nights a week. Anyway, I was drunk one night, and on top of it, smoked some weed, and I was looking for trouble. And uh, we were hanging out in 12th and Morris in Philadelphia, our neighborhood, and, and uh, there was a person of another skin color walking behind a girl who was white. And I told myself he was harassing her. But he wasn't. He was just taking a walk. And my friends dared me to go and confront him and hit him. And I I did without thinking. I ran up behind him and just with all my might hit him from behind in the face. And he, he ran. My friends laughed. I chased after the guy. He stopped in the middle of the street, put up his hands for a fight, which I was game for, and went to throw a punch and didn't see the knife, and he stuck it four inches in my side, collapsing my lung. And I looked down at my white shirt, which was now blood red. 
obviously I made it. I uh, got to the hospital quickly. They inflated my lung, and, and I'm good to go. But I, racism nearly killed me. I knew if something didn't change, I would not see my 21st birthday. Here's where the, here's where the tragedy becomes a comedy. I checked myself in the Teen Challenge in Syracuse, New York, a Christian drug and alcohol rehab. I walk in the door. There are 15 guys in a group meeting who are going to live in that house for months, and I'm going to be with them. And I start to do some math. Seven African Americans. There's five Latinos and three white guys. I wasn't good at math, high school dropout and all, but I knew I was in the minority. <laughs> for, the, for the first time, I was in the minority. And I was scared to death. We're going to kill each other, I thought. We're going to be eating together, working together, praying together, playing together, fighting together. We're going to be sharing a bedroom. We're going to be sharing a bathroom. We're going to be sharing life. This is not going to work well. I went to Teen Challenge as that guy lying half naked and dead on the Jericho Road. And the Good Samaritan that saved a wretch like me was a community full of diverse people I was culturally taught to hate. They showed me Jesus by their love and acceptance of me. It didn't matter anymore if the guy next to me was white or brown or black. We were bound together by a common battle against a common enemy addiction brought together by a common king, Christ, on a common mission, sobriety. And they were my good Samaritan. My good Samaritan was a black guy named Victor, a Latino man named Hector, and a white guy named Rich. They showed me Jesus. And I'm not sure I would be in Christ today had I not landed in that diverse community full of people I was culturally taught to hate who loved me and accepted me with all of my wrinkles and flaws. This is not a story about how I overcame racism. This is a story about how reconciliation overcame me. A couple PowerPoints in case you missed everything else I said. <laughs> Let's put those up. We're going to have some Q&A in just a minute. Any theology that results in the inferiority of a person due to gender or race is not biblical. If you'd like to debate with me and argue otherwise, I'm game. Not now, but at some point. Any theology that disqualifies a person for a job or ministry due to gender or race is not biblical. A truly biblical theology of gender and race affirms that every human being is equal because the image of God is in every human being. And finally, the mission of the church is to partner with Christ in restoring the creation that humanity lost in the fall. I found out that my grandmother told all nine of her grandchildren they were her favorite. <laughs> that bothered me. I told her. She said, get over it. <laughs> Jesus loves the little children all the little children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Are you God's favorite? Absolutely you are. But so is every other human being.
get over it. Celebrate it. Pursue it. Let's pray. An ancient prayer. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning. May it be now and evermore. Amen. Let's stand together and sing before we go to some Q&A for a few minutes. Well, we are trying to have uh, some Q&A discussion around these important questions and topics. Uh, Last week we had anatomy, and this week equality, and we have a few more ecology next week, and then sexuality, the fun one, coming up the last week. So uh, we want this to feel like a conversation. We are not, you know, wisdom doesn't die with us, but we want to at least try to address some of the questions you might have texted and uh, just get our minds and hearts around the issues, especially the application of the sermon. So, Pastor Jessica. All right. Uh, first one, we'll go with, how can we better detect sexist and racist tendencies in ourselves so that we can hold those attitudes captive to Christ? I think it takes an enormous amount of intimacy with God. I don't think it's possible. It sounds like a Christian answer to, you know, sort of a simplistic sort of answer, but... There's some practical things we can do, but I don't think it's going to happen without union in Christ, with Christ by the Spirit. Because I think God exposes stuff that we can't see, right? God holds up the mirror to us for us to see who we really are, self-awareness, God-awareness. And um, I don't think that's possible. Um, we can see the more surface sins. I could see certain sins in my life that are pretty obvious, but the covert stuff, the stuff in the basement, the subtle prejudices that I have, that will only be exposed in as much as I am connected intimately to Christ through the Spirit so that I see who I am. And God doesn't show us our sin to sort of shove our face in our vomit. That's not what he's about. He's not trying to shame us in our sin, but save us from our sin. So it's important to recognize that. What would you say? Yeah, kind of, I was thinking of, you know, when the pastor says, asks a question in the sermon and and you go to nudge someone else and it's kind of the age old thing is, well, maybe you should be nudging yourself. Like maybe if you're nudging someone else, maybe that's actually something that you struggle with. And so I would think maybe if you're thinking about, you know, I think I might struggle with this, Maybe you are. And so maybe just recognizing and admitting, because it's one of those things that I think we don't like to admit at all. And so once you recognize and admit and bring it into the light, I think that allows us to bring that captive before Christ. Yeah. Can I say a little more about that just practically? So uh, think about the people you've had a meal with in the last uh, year. How many were different from you ethnically? Uh, Think about uh, the books you've read. Uh, this past year, or the movies you've watched. How many of the books that you read were written by someone who was different from you in gender or ethnicity? How many of the movies you watched featured uh, a hero that was different from you ethnically or in terms of gender? That's often a good indication um, of where you're at on the issue, honestly. Unless you don't read books or go to movies, then, then, you're, then you're safe, okay? Then you're all right. 
Another one, they're kind of two related. How do I actually start reconciling areas of inequality in my life? And one question came in specifically about confronting a boss or supervisor who shows extreme sexist behavior. So kind of the practical side of that. Wow. It's true that even in the 21st uh, century, um, sexism still exists in the workplace. You find it odd, right? Because we've progressed so far, but we haven't. (laughs) And uh, there are women held back, and, and sadly, especially in the church sometimes, I mean, we are, we are part of a Wesleyan denomination that ordains women for all kinds of leadership and ministry, and yet even in, in, in just the Midwest, how many, how many women are lead pastors over men? I don't know of any. Maybe there's some, but I don't know of any. So uh, there's overt sexism, which is easier to detect, but then there's sort of more covert, which needs to be addressed. I, if you're in a position where you are being treated unfairly uh, because of your gender, uh, I hope there are places in your institution that you can take that concern to uh, safe environments. If there is not, um, then you have two choices. You, you suck it up and collect the paycheck, or you confront the monster um, in love and as a Christian, but forthrightly, and you take your chances and see where it goes. But uh, Or you talk to a a person, if you're a woman, if you talk to a person who's a male in the workplace who might be able to defend you, sometimes it takes, uh, this may sound sexist, I mean, it, it takes a woman to defend a man sometimes among women. And it takes a man to defend a woman among men. It takes a white person to defend black people among whites. It takes a black person to defend white people among blacks. So I think men in the workplace need to step up and uh, defend the equality of women as opposed to women just defending women all the time because then then it's just a bunch of angry feminism. But when a man speaks up or a woman or a woman for a man, then it's different. Anyway, so I'm talking too long about that one, sorry. Another question that came in, the Bible says we are one blood, therefore we are one race, the human race. Why isn't the church teaching this? I'm not sure the, where the question's coming from, except that it sounds like the question's maybe uh, suggesting that because we're all one race, why, why even talk about our differences? Um, but I think the power and the beauty of God is evident in our differences. Um, and don't forget, God is one. There's one origin of God, that's God. I mean, but, but, but God is, is Father, Son, and Spirit. Unity in diversity. And somehow in the, in, the, in the diversity, there's a beauty and a unity. And I think that God created us the same way. I mean, male and female are different. Black, white, brown, yellow are different. And yet when we come together as one in the midst of our diversity, we somehow get this. This is mind-boggling. When diverse people unite in love, we reflect the nature of the Trinitarian God. Three in one which is what Jesus prayed in John 17, right? Father, may they be one. May they be brought to complete unity so that the world might know that you sent me. So we, we let the world know that Jesus has come from the Father, not by passing out tracts and doing hymn sings and potlucks or finding the, 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 the flashiest, coolest, uh, skinny jeans-wearing, hipster beard-sporting worship leader. We actually communicate that the Father sent the Son when we, men and women, black, brown, white, yellow, red, unite 
not just tolerate each other, but love each other from the heart. That says to the world, Jesus Christ has come from the Father. And the adverse is true. When we don't unite, we might send another message that maybe Jesus isn't as real as we say he is. This one's kind of similar to someone that's already been asked, but it has a little bit of a difference. How do you reconcile gender roles due to biological differences between men and women? Why don't you, why don't you tackle that one? <laughs> I'll, I'll piggyback on you. Here I am saying women have something to offer, and I'm doing all the talking. So That's uh, not because it's hard. It's just because I want you to answer the question. I mean, I had a conversation recently that was kind of talking about this and how just due to purely biological differences, there's been some challenges in, in some workforces just to be able to address both, both men and women equally. Um, I think where it becomes an issue, though, is when you're allowing that to become change your view and perception of that person because naturally and we'll talk more about this in the last week there are differences between men and women biologically but if that itself is informing your entire view of that person then that's where it's become an issue so how do you reconcile that well you recognize their equal value as a person you address the biological need whatever that is but that doesn't change i mean this is a super silly example, but I need different hair product than my husband just because our hair is different. That doesn't mean one person's hair is better or worse. Maybe. No, yours is better. But I, I mean, it's, it's just you're addressing the biological differences, but it's not, it's not making a, a value statement of the bio, biology, I guess. Yeah, so. totally. Yeah, you, you, well said. Well, the, the problem is when we, when we use uh, biological excuses for our sexism, which happens all the time. So we got to be careful of that and be able to see through it. One last question. Do you think it's possible to take the issue of equality too far to the point that we are overlooking those things that make us unique? Yes, I think uh, if equality... I, I, just don't, I just don't assume that equality means melting pot. Like it's just, uh, we're just going to melt everybody together as one and lose all our distinctiveness because I don't see that in God. The Father, the Son, the Spirit are distinct and different in their roles, yet united in who they are, at the core of who they are. So there's not a blending together. There's not a hierarchy. Um, and so if equality means losing our distinctiveness as men or women or as an Italian or uh, a Native American, right? Mexican. 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 Um, then, then I don't think that's what God wants. I mean, God created us diverse, so uh, we can be equal in our diversity, and to me, that's more powerful. What do you think? Yeah, I think this is just, this is an issue that it's kind of a, a tricky one where it's if I talk about it, I'm in trouble. If I don't talk about it, I'm in trouble. And, and so it's like on the one hand, we need to be uh, recognizing differences and celebrating those. And on the other hand, we're saying, well, but we're all the same. And so it kind of feels in some ways like it's a lose-lose situation. But I think in reality, it's we need to stretch ourselves. If, if I'm a person that's prone to ignore differences, maybe I need to take some time to recognize differences and, and kind of edge to the other side or vice versa. If I'm, if I'm a person that only sees the differences and doesn't recognize the commonalities... 
maybe I need to lean more towards that. And so do you think it's possible? Well, it could be possible if you're leaning in one side and you're never trying to see the other side. Yes. But if you're, if you're making a concerted effort to see both, both sides, whether that's equality and, and oneness or differentness, if you're trying to do that, then I think that's, that's kind of the sweet spot we, as Christians and really as humans, need to be landing. Totally. And I think, too, sometimes we... Uh... That's talking about blending equality or making too big of a deal of equality. Sometimes we make too big of a deal of our distinctiveness. So if, so if, I mean, I think all of us should be known mostly for our allegiance to Christ. Here comes a child of Christ. Not here comes an Italian guy, or here comes a Mexican woman, uh, or here comes a Republican, or here comes a Democrat. Like if you're known more for your political party or your gender or your ethnicity than you're known as a child of Jesus Christ, a child of God, then something is wrong. You're, you're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Okay. Looks like we had one more. Oh. All right, one more that came in. Are there other examples of inequality that weren't mentioned in the sermon, not gender or race? Yes, age. Mm-hmm. Uh, age discrimination all the time in the church, outside the church. Um, you know, like people hit a certain age and then they then they are no good anymore. You know, like they have a shelf life, seventy years, and then they they're good for nothing. When in actuality, that's where wisdom lies, right? In history. But the same is true, right? So we have, we have four young pastors on our staff. I'm going to put myself in that category. I'm young. Um, but we have, we have four in their 20s, four ministry staff. And, um, uh, and they have so much to offer. And they're so gifted and wise beyond their years. Um, sometimes the older generation assumes that if you're in your 20s, you've not had enough life experience to offer anything good at all, too. So, man, it happened. I remember when I went to pastor church, uh, so I heard this secondhand that a, a 70-year-old woman in the church saw me and said, what could he possibly say to teach me anything? He's young. He hasn't lived long enough. Um, thankfully, I never learned who that woman was. I might have, might have had to duke it out with her. I don't know. <laughs> Pretty sure I'd win. Anyway, we... Great questions. Uh, feel free to shoot some more at us. Yeah, I was just going to add one last thing. Um, I, I jotted down from what you had said that kind of spurred in my mind. Generalizations, whether it's with race, age, uh, gender, any of those are so dangerous. But I think one of the most important things we can remember is the safest generalization we could make is that we're all sinners in need of forgiveness. Mm, absolutely. I think when we recognize that, we can't, we can't go wrong.